Thank you very much, brethren. My lesson is coming out of Acts chapter 9, verses 3 through 5. Uh, come go with me as we read the um, scripture. The Bible states, And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. As I stated earlier, my lesson is fighting a losing battle. And in preaching this lesson, I want to focus on three concepts. Number one, God's battles uh, can be symbolic. Uh, number two, God's battles can be sovereign. And I'll end the lesson with this last concept. God's battles are spiritual. They're symbolic, they're sovereign, and they're spiritual. When we begin to read about God's battle that are symbolic, at the time of this writing, uh, Saul's name is Saul. It later on becomes Paul. Uh, the name Saul is Hebrew, and it means ask for or prayed for. The name Paul is Greek, and it means small or little, perhaps maybe an allusion to him being the least of all the apostles, as he would say in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 9. Now, one of God's up-and-coming servants, Stephen, if you remember him from Acts chapter 6, Stephen was stoned to death by a group of men who were being led by Saul. After they had stoned Stephen, listen to what the Bible tells us in Acts 8 and verse 1. And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Not only was Saul content with the death of Stephen, this man also began his journey to Damascus to locate other Christians who were uh, hiding out, who had taken refuge in this city. Saul wanted to arrest, Saul wanted to bring these followers of Jesus back to Jerusalem and perhaps even have them killed. Saul was like a runaway train without a driver. In Acts 9 and verse 1, Luke depicted Saul's anger with these words. And Saul, yet breathing out, threatening and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. You know, isn't it amazing how we behave when we become angry? Angry people tend to not think rationally. There's an old saying, we'll cut off our nose to spite our face. Paul has this type of anger built up in him. The uh, wise man would tell us in Proverbs 15 and verse 19, a wrathful man stirreth up strife. When we become angry, when we become wrathful, uh, we have nothing else to focus on but causing even more confusion. But something pretty profound happened. 
First of all, Saul, Saul saw a light from heaven. Then Paul fell to the earth. Then he heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Saul's response to this voice was, who art thou, Lord? You've got someone speaking to you. You don't, you don't see a face, but you hear a voice. It's always nice to ask a question. And the Bible states, and the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Please take note that when Saul attacked the church, he was also attacking Christ. Christ says, while you persecutest thou me. It is impossible for us to separate the church from the Christ. Nevertheless, Jesus stated to Saul in Acts 9 and verse 5, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Now, the phrase kick against the prick is an agricultural term. Uh, a prick was a, a sharp pointed instrument, and it was strategically placed, uh, especially on ox, to keep them from kicking. If they kick the the pointed instrument would stick them in a particular location, causing excruciating pain. Farmers use these pricks to control rebellious animals. And the ox was a rebellious animal. The thing about the ox, though, is the ox was also a purchased animal. So I want us to understand the relationship that Jesus also has with uh, Saul. Remember, Jesus purchased the church with his blood. Jesus is looking for precious souls. And so he compares Saul's behavior to a purchased rebellious animal. When he says, why are you kicking against the prick? This is, this is Jesus speaking the way that Jesus speak. Jesus constantly spoke in what was referred to as being an allegorical style of speaking, uh, where he would speak of hidden truths. And when he finished, the people that he was speaking to really understood him, perhaps better than anyone else. And so rather than make this statement, Saul, if you if you don't listen to me, you're going to compromise your salvation. Or, or Saul, why are you fighting a losing battle? But we're told in Matthew 13 and verse 3 that Jesus spake many things unto his followers in parables. These parables had these hidden meanings for the common listener during uh, Jesus' days. For instance, think about the situation when Jesus was with the Samaritan woman uh, in John chapter 4 at Jacob's well. Remember Jesus asked this lady to bring a husband. She says, I don't have a husband. Jesus stated to this lady that, you know, you've had five husbands. When you research this, you see that no scholar will really say what this lady had done. We all can agree that she had done something wrong. Her behavior uh, was sinful. But when you begin to research this perhaps even deeper, perhaps was Jesus speaking to her allegorically? Was he speaking to her symbolically in a way that she understood that perhaps no one else understood what Jesus was saying? 
Matter of fact, Jesus stated to her, you've had five husbands. And so no one is exactly sure what Jesus was alluding to. But we need to remember that the Samaritans were Jews who had married foreign wives. The Samaritans also had been taken into uh, bondage by the Assyrians. And then the Bible lets us know that uh, once the Samaritans were occupied by, this, by the uh, Assyrians, the Bible tells us in 2 Kings chapter 17 and verse 9 that Israel did secretly those things that were not right against the Lord their God. But observe this. Look at 2 Kings 17, verses 23 and 24. The Bible states, So Israel carried away out of their own land to Assyria, and to this day, and the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon, one, and from Kutha, two, and from Ava, three, and from Hamath, four, and from Savarvian, five, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they possessed Samaria and dwelt in the cities thereof. Each of these five foreign nations were brought in unto the Samarians, uh, I mean the Samaritans. And each of these nations brought their own gods with them, according to 2 Kings 17 and verse 29. And the Bible tells us that they put these gods in high places where the Samaritans worship. What's so important about this? Look at 2 Kings 17 and verse 33. The Bible states that they feared the Lord and they served their own God after the manner of the nations who they carried away from thence. Now, in the Old Testament, God constantly referred to himself as being Israel's husband. Isaiah 54 and verse 5, he says, for thy maker is thy husband. Anytime Israel would go off and mess around with another foreign god, God would accuse accuse uh, Israel of having another husband, being involved in spiritual adultery. But God further stated to Israel in Hosea 2 and verse 9, And I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. God desires a relationship with all people, but his wish and God's desire has to be accomplished in the manner that God has ascribed. Yet the Israelites in Samaria had become wife to five Gentile gods. Therefore, when Jesus is speaking to the Samaritan woman, um, that the man was, and asking her that the man you're with now, he's not your husband. Again, is he speaking symbolically? We have to remember, even now, the Samaritans worship in a place called Mount Gerizim. And in this place, they considered as being their fit place for worship. History shows that they there's only about 200 of these Samaritans that are still living today, and they're starting to marry foreign wives. And Jesus poses a very good question to the Samaritan woman. He says to her, 
the husband you're with now is not yours. Remember, the Samaritans were gods at one time. When I mean they were gods, they belonged to God at one time. The Samaritans were Jews who still worship under the Torah. And Jesus is going to let them know that you're still worshiping under the Old Testament, worshiping a husband, perhaps, that you still don't need to be worshiping. As a matter of fact, he tells her in John 4 and verses 28 and 29, he went after she had went into the city and she had said to the men, come see a man which told me all that I ever did. Remember the Samaritans, what they were doing uh, over in 2 Kings 17, everything they were doing, they thought it was in secret, but God knows what all of us are doing. No doubt that Samaritan woman had not expected, nor had she prepared herself uh, for this exchange with Christ. But yet, after a conversation with him, she understood that to fight against the Messiah would have been nothing less than a losing battle. But just as some fights are symbolic, God's fights can also be sovereign. When something is sovereign, what it means is that it's self-governing. And there's certain people, there's some people who live on this earth who are just twisted. Uh, they have a foolish mind. They have a twisted mind. Their view of God is even twisted. In 2008, I still remember uh, in Chicago, they had city buses that were driving around and had... Um, ads on there from the atheists, and it said, in the beginning, man created God. This was part of the movement that the atheists were really doing around the entire world. Uh, the psalmist wrote, the fool have said in his heart that there is no God, uh, Psalm 14 and verse 1. But look at Pharaoh, for example. Uh, think about who Pharaoh was. The word Pharaoh is generic, and it simply means king. There's an old saying that when you're king, all else is treason. Therefore, when you're king, you have absolute power in that kingdom. No one tells you what to do. You're sovereign, and you possess supreme and ultimate power. The king is in charge of the military. The king is in charge of the money. The king is in charge of the mandates. And during the days of Moses, uh, the Pharaoh of Egypt was considered to be the most powerful person in all the world. And on top of that, the ancient Egyptians believed that their Pharaoh was God. So observe, observe this. Observe what happened when, when Moses and, and, and Aaron, they approached Pharaoh and they go back to bring Pharaoh a message from Lord God, Jehovah. The Bible states in Exodus chapter five, verses one and two. And afterwards, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord neither will I let Israel go. As we can see, Moses and Aaron were not very convincing 
to Pharaoh at this time. God said, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, I, I don't know your God. Why is he asking me to do that? Uh, I'm not going to do you a favor. I'm Pharaoh. I'm a king. Letting the children of Israel go also uh, would mean that Pharaoh was going to be getting rid of very cheap labor. Uh, the Egyptians had become the most powerful country in the world due to this uh, cheap labor. Remember that, that Joseph had been sold into Egyptian slavery, and based on his advice to Pharaoh, Egypt had become a very prosperous nation, while other nations had suffered uh, due to the seven years of famine. Egypt had a monopoly on commerce. They had a monopoly on supplies. So Joseph, a Jew, and his relatives had been great to Egypt. And Pharaoh was not looking to get rid of this cheap labor. So what did God do? God used plagues to sort of show his power to Pharaoh. But even during these plagues, we find out that Pharaoh was still reluctant to release the children of Israel. Pharaoh seemed to believe that these miracles did not come from God. Instead, he thought that these plagues were perhaps just a natural phenomenon. Even historians agree that, that similar plagues had happened in the area of Egypt over time. The first plague, of course, was the turning the water to blood and having all the fish die. The second plague was the frogs covering uh, the whole land of Egypt. The third plague was bugs crawling all over Egypt. The fourth plague was wild animals running rampant throughout Egypt. The fifth plague was a pestilence that killed all of Egypt's livestock. The sixth plague was boils appearing upon all the Egyptians and their animals. The seventh plague was hail falling from the uh, falling from the sky, which was uh, killing the animals, the trees, and it was also it was also killing the crops. The eighth plague was the locust that ate up every green plant that was left over from the hail and the pestilences. The ninth plague was total darkness for some time. But in all of these plagues, each time Pharaoh would harden his heart. But then Pharaoh would go through a whiplash of a change of heart. In his mind, initially, he would not let the people go. Then he'd say, okay, they can go. This happened over and over again. Then Pharaoh actually begins to soften up a little bit. During a few of the plagues, he even asked Moses to pray to God and ask for this misery to stop. But as soon as the misery would stop, Pharaoh would get right back to his shenanigans and he wouldn't let the people go. It wasn't until the very last plague, which was the death of the Egyptian firstborn, including Pharaoh's own son, that Pharaoh realized that he was fighting a losing battle. Pharaoh's advisor even told him and Exodus 10 and verse 7, how long shall this man be a snare unto us? Let the, men, let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. 
Knowest thou not yet that Egypt is destroyed? His advisors are saying to Pharaoh, we're fighting a losing battle. Pharaoh had already lost the battle, but his obstinance wouldn't allow him to simply release the Israelites. As we said it earlier, some people will cut off their nose to spite their face. Yet, Pharaoh would eventually let the people go. But then his ego kicked back in and Pharaoh decided to get back in the fight. And he decided to pursue the Israelites. Of course, the Jews were nervous. Of course, they were scared and they were even panicking. But observe that Moses stated to the children of Israel in Exodus 14 and verse 14, the Lord shall fight for you and ye shall hold your peace. Though God was fighting the battle for Israel, we need to make sure that we make note of how God was fighting his battle. Yeah, God is operating in his uh, providential mode. God is operating in his miraculous mode, but God is also expecting for man to work with him when he's fighting our battles. The Bible tells us in Exodus 14 and verse 15, and the Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me, speaking to the children of Israel, that they go forward. When God fights our battles, he still wants us to actively work with him. Moving forward was important because the children of Israel would need to get away from the Pharaoh's army. The grace of God will not allow us to be inactive. Paul tells us in Titus 2 and verse 11 that the grace of God, it instructs us, it disciplines us, it teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly uh, desires and to live sensibly, to live righteously and in a good, godly manner in this present age. The grace of God teaches us what we should and should not be doing on this time side of life. So when the grace of God instructs us to do something, this is not the time to kick against a prick and to fight a losing battle. Israel went forward across the Red Sea to the other side. Pharaoh's army then continued to chase after Israel. But then something happened to let Pharaoh uh, Pharaoh's men know that they were in essence dead in the water. The Bible states that the wheels from the Egyptian chariots got stuck in the mud while they were out in the middle of the sea. And then we're told in Exodus 14 and verse 25 that the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel for the Lord fighteth for them against the Egyptians. It's a bad thing when a person realizes that he's fighting a losing battle. And even worse is when we realize that we're fighting against the Lord. Of course, the, the Egyptian army ended up dying in the Red Sea. And the Bible tells us in Exodus 14, verses 30 and 31, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. And Israel saw that great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians 
and the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Clearly, Pharaoh and his army were fighting a losing battle, and he didn't even know it until it was too late. But lastly, God's battles are spiritual. God's battles are spiritual. In the New Testament, God's battles were different than what they were in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God would literally fight the battles for uh, his people. In the New Testament, the battles were different. They were spiritual. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. When Jesus told the Sadducees that they were, uh, there was no marriage in the resurrection. The Bible take, tells us in Matthew 22 and verse 24 that the Pharisees heard that Jesus had put the Sadducees to silence. The Sadducees were claiming that if one, uh, if a brother had died and, uh, and a lady had had a child by him or married this man and he died and married another man, it, all the way to like five or six men, whose, whose wife would she be in the resurrection? Jesus says, there is no marriage in the resurrection. And by saying this, he puts the Pharisees, put the Sadducees to silence. And the Pharisees heard about this. But Paul will continue by stating, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Now, after Christ had silenced the Sadducees, in the same conversation with the Pharisees, he asked this question, what think you of Christ? Whose son is he? The Pharisees responded by saying, the son of David. Well, Jesus uh, responded to them by stating in Matthew 24 and verse 22 and verse 45, if David then called him Lord, how is he his son? In verse 46, the NA SB state, no one was able to offer him a word and answer, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask Jesus any more questions. Our warfare is different now than what it had been in times past. Paul would state, this is why we need to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Ephesians 6, uh, Ephesians 4 and verse 23. God wants us to fight, but God wants us to fight right. This fight is going to occur in the playground of God's word, whereby we must rightly divide. I use the phrase, the playground of God's word, because when we're fighting battles, it has to be according to God's system. It has to be according to his guidelines. It has to be according to his rules and his regulations. Of course, when you're playing against an opponent and you're beating them pretty bad, it literally takes the will out of anyone who wants to compete against you again. According to Matthew 4 and verse 11, uh, after the devil had competed with 
Jesus. The Bible says that the devil left Jesus, of course, after a good whipping, a good verbal whipping with the word of God. And since it's Jesus who paves the roadmap from earth to glory, we're told in James 4 and verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Even Satan realizes that fighting against the Lord is to fight a losing battle. So when Paul was on the road to Damascus and Jesus stated to him, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. We have to ask ourselves this question. Why did Jesus say what he said to Saul? You know, this is something perhaps he could have said to someone else. But let's look at a few things and perhaps maybe this will help in our answer. Let's go and look at Acts 21. And let's observe the setting. Paul is in Jerusalem. Paul is preaching the gospel at the temple. The Jews find out that not only is Paul at the temple, but he's also brought, a, brought in a Gentile by the name of, of Trophimus. And he's brought Trophimus into a section of the temple that the Gentiles were not allowed. The Jews were furious. They attacked Paul and started beating him up. And they were even saying that they wanted to kill um, Paul and Saul. But a Roman soldier saw this commotion. He intervened along with some other officers, and they decided to simply just, we're going to arrest Paul, and we're going to place this man in jail. And we're going to do it for his own safety. And all my years of working as a police officer, I can't remember arresting somebody to put him in jail for their own sake. Notwithstanding, they're trying to protect Paul's life. But as they were taking Paul to the local jail, he asked the soldiers if he could say something to the crowd. When the commander gave Paul permission to speak, he informed the crowd of his resume. According to Acts 22 and verse 3, Paul, Paul stated to the crowd, I am verily a man which am a Jew born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers and was zealous toward God as ye all are this day. So who was Gamaliel? And why is his name important as it relates to fighting a losing battle? Well, we go back to Acts chapter 5 we'll see where the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they had arrested and placed the apostles in jail. But an angel of the Lord had freed them during the night and told them to go to the temple and preach the gospel. Once the apostles arrived at the temple, the Sanhedrin council was also there and they began to admonish the apostles. They told the apostles in Acts 5 and verse 28, did we straightly command you that you should not teach in his name. And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Not only did they accuse the apostles of teaching and preaching the gospel, but they were also now trying to accuse the apostles of blaming them for Jesus' death, which they are very guilty of. But the apostles responded to the council and they used these famous words in Acts 5 and verse 29. We ought to obey God rather than man. 
Now observe what happened in Acts 5 in verse 33. The Bible states when they heard that they, the Jewish leaders, were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. The Jewish leaders were now so infuriated that they wanted to kill the apostles. But if we recall, these leaders are cut to the heart. But in Acts 2 and verse 37, the Bible says that the Jews were pricked in their heart. In essence, their conscience would not allow them to fight against the truth. Our conscience will not allow us to fight a losing battle. And said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Perhaps this is what occurred to Gamaliel in Acts 5 verses 34 and 35. For the Bible states, then stood up there one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, who had a reputation among all the people and commanded to put the apostle forth a little space. This is the same Gamaliel who had Saul as a pupil. And though Gamaliel cohorts were cut to the heart, it appears that Gamaliel had a, he had the voice of reason. He stated, ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves that ye intend to do as touching these men. Gamaliel was encouraging his associates to, we need to proceed cautiously with this, with these apostles because it appeared that they were considerably fighting this losing battle. Gamaliel would further state in verse 38, and now I say unto you, refrain from these men and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. If what these apostles are doing is man's idea, then it will fail. But then Gamaliel stated in verse 39, but if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest happily you be found even to fight against God. Clearly, Gamaliel realized that fighting against God is fighting a losing battle. Paul had learned on Gamaliel. So when we go over to Acts chapter 6, and we see that the church had appointed the seven to serve tables. But one of those servants was Stephen who was full of the Holy Ghost, and Stephen was full of wisdom. In Acts 6 and verse 8, uh, Stephen goes out and begins his first sermon. And the Bible says, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. And then in Acts 6 and verse 10, Luke records, And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which Stephen spoke. So by the time we get to the end of chapter 7, Stephen is finishing up his sermon to the Jews of Jerusalem. And we observe what happened in Acts 7, verses 57 and 58. Then they, the Jews, cried with a loud voice and stopped their ears. Remember, they can't compete against this wisdom. The Bible says, and they ran upon Stephen with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. At this time, Saul was using carnal warfare to fight a spiritual battle. So when he came in contact with Jesus on the road to Damascus, Jesus is perhaps simply reminding Saul of what Gamaliel had already said. 
that if you're fighting against God, then you're fighting a losing battle. Saul, why are you kicking against the pricks? Saul, why are you trying to achieve something that you know will fail? Saul, why are you chasing a rainbow? Saul, why are you running in circles? Therefore, Saul, coming to his senses from having the voice of God appeal to him, his conscience is affected. Conscience with knowledge. We're told in Acts 9 and verse 6, And he, Saul, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Saul continued into the city of Damascus, but his purpose had changed. He was no longer looking to destroy Christians. He was not no longer looking to persecute the church of Christ. No longer did Saul want to fight against God. Instead of fighting against God, he had now become a fighter for God. He would later tell King Agrippa in Acts 26 and verse 19, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. When Saul was speaking to the crowd from the doors of the, of the Jerusalem jailhouse, it was at this time that Saul began to reflect on his conversion with Ananias, who stated to him in Acts 22 and verse 16, And why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins calling on the name of the Lord. What Saul understood is instead of fighting this losing battle, it is always better to be an ally of God and fight with him. Unless we repent of our sins, and unless we are baptized or have all of our sins washed away, we're simply fighting a losing battle. But for those who have obeyed the gospel, and those who have backslidden back into their sins, God expects us to repent. And he tells us two times in Luke 13, verses 3 and 5, that we repent or that we perish. Paul would later encourage the brethren in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58 to be steadfast, to be unmovable, to always abound in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We thank you very much for being able to come out tonight and listen to this lesson. And hopefully all of us have the attitude that when it comes to God and his word, that we're not fighting a losing battle. Thank you.